Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. So Nancy Davis, Chief Investment Officer of Quadratic Capital Management, maybe if you can uh, give us a background to your history and um, your role in in finance today and how you actually came to be the CIO of of Quadratic. So um, I founded Quadratic in 2013. Prior to starting my own firm, I spent the majority of my career at Goldman Sachs. I was there for about a decade, mostly on the proprietary trading group. So we had no clients. We just invested Goldman's capital. And uh, it's a great opportunity. I guess prop desks don't really exist anymore, at least in uh, most banks. And I felt lucky to be there during that time. And see, I got promoted to be the head of credit derivatives and OTC trading for the whole team when I was in my mid-20s. So it was uh, pretty awesome. It would have been an interesting time um, to to be on the prop desk of, of Goldman Sachs. It's uh, one of the ones, one of the places where there's a lot of stories that come out. But I'm really curious around how you thought about risk at that period of time. You know, what did that teach you? Uh, obviously, the prop desks aren't available like they used to be. What do you feel that you learnt about sort of managing risk and trading markets at that time? Well, for me, it really taught me to use asymmetry and convexity in portfolios. I, uh, you know, especially when Goldman was a partnership, a dollar that you lost was actually probably even more important than a dollar you made. So using um, options was really where I, uh, what later became quadratic was really created from the Goldman prop desk when we structured uh, defined downside, but then asymmetric upside. And when you were working, obviously trading options, how do you feel that that market has changed, right? It was probably one of those areas that was much more institutionalized and high net worth. Now options, we keep thinking about them with regards to the Wall Street bet style crowd, retail people coming in, options has been very much democratized. How much do you think that's changed the, the option market particularly? So most investors, I think the one thing your question was, what has changed uh, over the last, you know, since the financial crisis in the options market? And I think the big change has been the rise of systematic strategies. And many systematic strategies are based on the back test. And the back test looks great when you sell optionality. And so I think a lot of the strategies have, I like to call them G-rated names, you know, whether it's um, alternative risk premia or um, carry or all sorts of uh, benign names for selling options and that the world has kind of turned to as an alternative uh, because we've had very, very low, if not negative yields for so long that people have been looking to these uh, these volatility selling strategies. So I think back in the 80s, the world was mostly dominated by people buying options and using options for hedging and protection. Now, I think the world is pretty dominated by people uh, needing carry and leverage um, in their markets uh, and using options to sell them to harvest that, that volatility premium. Do you feel that the amount of uh, leverage that's been added into the system has really made the markets actually much more unstable? I think it's probably a combination of not very many market makers and also just the markets are definitely unstable um, in terms of liquidity. Uh, You could see that 
you know, even in March 2020, the treasury market um, was really, the U.S. treasury market was, um, I would say, almost broken. So I think it's just a sign that liquidity can go away in any market. I know a lot of CTA strategies sell themselves to investors as long volatility. I think that's garbage because it requires that you have liquidity to implement stop losses to replicate option like payouts. So I think you have to be very, very careful with linear derivatives. Um, so futures forward swaps, because you are relying, It's to me, it's like credit card exposure where you get exposure to something and you don't really pay for it. I found that piece really interesting around the liquidity challenges and and many of the, the super funds in Australia found similar problems in, in March 2020, um, just not being able to trade anything um, in the volumes that they need. How much do you see that as being a bit of a problem in the market that the central bank is always seen as this backstop? We've cut out the prop desks. Um, the market is really failing in, in many aspects to actually deliver what it's supposed to, which is this market mechanism to allow for a constant equilibrium or a balance. Well, I think that the big bubble has been many um, institutional investors have been going into private markets because they're not marked to market. So they have, you know, on paper, less volatility, but it's, I, I like to call those a three monkey strategies where, you know, the, the monkey uh, can't see, can't hear and can't speak because the volatility is still there. It's just not price volatility because there is no mark to market. So I don't think investors should shy away from volatility. Um, and I think a lot of investors have been trading off the liquidity premium by going into private markets because when you look at their mark to market, they tend to be, they look like they're lower ball, but I don't really think how, how would a private corporation be any different than a public corporation in terms of, you know, their costs, their expenses, profit, earnings, you know, what business they're in. It's just kind of the same thing. It's just the the liquidity premium has really gone away because so many institutional investors are are funneling into private credit, direct lending strategies. It's just become wildly popular. It's a really interesting time because you've got so much money flowing into these areas. And that's been obviously very beneficial because these are still new markets, particularly around private credit has, you know, it's been growing over a number of years and more and more money's come in. But pricing's become very tight on on these assets. Uh, and we just haven't seen any major correction in the last few years. What happens when you don't have this liquidity, when you've got real demands for people to actually pull out? How does it, you know, how, how does this now work in reverse? I think it's going to mean that the public markets become the funding vehicle. And so it's going to mean more volatility for the overall markets, especially with some of these private funds where uh, they can tap investors for liquidity when they need the capital, the drawdown funds. So I think what it means is just greater volatility in the public markets, because that will be the only place where there is liquidity. Because if you have a fund with a say a five, 10 year lockup, there's really no choice. And so I understand the appeal because many investors are very, very long-term, but I think a lot of the portfolios have been sacrificing that liquidity premium and the private markets have become, in my opinion, quite expensive. I find that really fascinating because I think for a lot of investors, they see the large end of town, some of these very big corporates uh, in in the equity pools, the you know, their long term investments that they want to hold, but ultimately they're almost de facto liquidity pools, and I'm not sure if the general market really understands that issue. 
um, and then the pressure that will come on that particular area. We have seen it anecdotally in in last sort of crises where you see these real big sell down for no reason. And obviously it's a liquidity related issue. But particularly in the case where we have so much passive investing in the markets today, how much do you do you potentially see this problem to be even amplified because you're selling these very large tech companies, for example, that are a very big part of your portfolio, and then it's just driving down passive indices as well? I think it just means that the volatility is generally probably not priced correctly because there's so much um, search for yield as well as so much reliance on portfolios being non-correlated. You know, most investors have something that looks like, you know, a 60-40 portfolio with some alternatives sprinkled around. But if everybody has, um, you know, I think especially stagflation is a huge risk for a 60-40 portfolio. And I don't know about you, Alex, but I feel it every day that we're having higher prices in the market, but not necessarily growth. And it's really as a result of the the pandemic and the supply shocks around the world. So I think investors really need to be thinking about what's going to happen going forward and how they can protect against stagflation or involved increase in volatility, or even if we have inflation, that's another way that investors can lose their money across the portfolio all at the same time is inflation. So I feel like there's a lot of focus on asset allocation and diversification, but not a lot of attention on the stagflation inflation side I, I and come- ball. Oh no, vol-, vol is what I wanted to come back to, right? And, and you mentioned that the volatility is, uh, is not priced correctly. Um, how much do you feel that that's a part of really the central banks suppressing volatility through their through their processes? Well, I think equity volatility is priced correctly. Just to be fair, I think anyone can really access the equity or index options markets. It's very um, easy and many institutional investors use that market. So I don't think there's a mispricing in equity volatility. I think the mispricing is actually fixed income volatility, specifically interest rate volatility and even further US interest rate volatility with the combination of fiscal spending, a blue wave um, politically in the United States and the Fed, uh, you know, being really, really focused on employment. I think it's a a really important time, whether we have inflation, deflation, or stagflation. I think fixed income volatility is the thing that looks most interesting to me. It's it's fascinating when you look at the market coming out of COVID, and there has been so much stimulus um, from a fiscal policy point of view, uh, and yet people still feel that... um, the inflation is containable. Oh, maybe not everyone, but the central banks definitely feel that that's the case. How, you know, how do you then sort of think about it through your mind? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's if we're going to have inflation or if we're not. It's unclear to me. I do think the biggest risk for investors is actually a stagflationary environment, which would be when stocks and bonds sell off together. And whether you're a private company with debt or a private public company, it doesn't really matter because that's bad for growth and bad for earnings. So I think stagflation to me is the biggest risk that I see. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. But to me, it looks like the same thing that we had. um, The U.S. had stagflation last in the 70s. And it was a result of the oil embargo. Today, it's just a different underlier. It's a chip crisis globally that we're having. And chips go into everything from cars, phones, appliances, you know, what what are chips not in? 
And I think that chip crisis is to me um, very similar to what we saw in the 70s. And I think investors really have to be thinking about how they protect their portfolio of stock and bond correlations actually become positive and that stocks sell off with bonds. What are they going to do? And I think that's where fixed income volatility really comes into play. I can't um, not not talk about really the corollary to the 1970s, which is around the oil embargoes and the price rises that came from that. Uh, we, we've got a similar problem today, and that is ESG, uh, particularly around some of the carbon, carbon neutral, uh, carbon net zero approaches that people are looking at that is really trying to put more and more pressure on these oil companies, which may create this de facto inflation in that way. You know, how much do you see that as a bit of a problem? I mean, I think everybody is very well intentioned, but I do have a big problem with the ESG industry, <laughs> you know, generally not about their focus on uh, on carbon, but it just seems, you know, I manage the IVOL ETF, which is a fixed income inflation fund that's also long US interest rate volatility. And I know I find it very frustrating because a lot of the ESG rating agencies say don't rate us as a ESG ETF because they are focused so much on passive indices or indices that have ESG in the name. And I find it a little frustrating because I think there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on in the industry and there's a lot of capital that's being allocated to certain, and there's a lot of pressure on certain sectors, as you talked about with the uh, energy companies that could be wildly inflationary. And I think um, IVAL is an access fund where we give access to the OTC rates markets. And from a governance point of view, you know, it is a registered minority um, small business enterprise, Quadratic is, and also a majority woman-owned firm. So I just, I think it's very unfair that you know, some of these rating agencies would give so much preferential treatment to public corporates, you know, with their stock and bonds because of their governance with their boards. Whereas we as a woman owned minority owned firm are not ESG because we don't meet their their screening criteria in stocks um, because we're not a stock fund. It, it's fascinating. I, I think there's a it's a really politically charged space, the ESG space at, at the moment. And there's a lot of money being thrown around, both from a marketing point of view, from branding and getting the various labels from different organizations and tick the box approaches. It's really quite fascinating because there's a lot of talk about uh, caring for the environment and, and what we need to do to actually uh, help the environment. And, and we can do that through supposedly moving uh, financial assets around um, most of the time. So it really seems quite a interesting debate or a, uh, yeah, academic debate around what actually impact do people have allocating to these ESG wrapper uh, style products. IVAL is so important in that ESG mix because if we have all this allocation, as you pointed out, to um, pressure on you know other energy companies, it could actually be inflationary. So why would you want to have all your chips on one asset class? It seems like adding uh, fixed income volatility and inflation expectations is so important. But it's just it's hard when you're kind of fighting the ESG is just like it's kind of feels like the wild, wild west where it hasn't really been defined. And it's very easy to run uh, quantitative models that screen public data like what corporations put out. But I just don't think only looking at, you know, stocks and corporates is the way to go. 
Well, I guess what where I wanted to get to also around this was that there's a fiduciary duty to protect your members' capital and a, and a fiduciary duty around earning returns and, and trying to allocate to the best place. And so to that end, that's where I think your product um, and the idea of being uh, very cognizant of the inflation risks is, is critical. And uh, I'm not sure how that aligns with the ESG crowd. Um, I think there's a, a very clear governance perspective that needs to be thought of. And there's still very much a fiduciary duty umbrella that needs to go over all these products. The other, the other thing that I wanted to touch on, you know, for you today, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times around the increasing level of f- fixed income volatility that's coming in. You know, how do you expect that to turn up? Are you expecting uh, a steepening in the yield curve? Are you expecting, um, you know, changes through the yield curve? Are you expecting parts of, um, some of the more corporate credit areas to to pick up and, and create some more volatility. Where do you see the, the change coming? Well, I think when you look at inflation assets in the United States, at least commodities are quite high. Many um, currencies that are uh, commodity-centric are also have appreciated a lot. And then you look at the equity markets where many of the you know equities that are sensitive to inflation have increased tremendously. And I, I, I think the one real pocket of value in the inflation markets are actually um, interest rate volatility because you know, inflation is one of those things that doesn't have a zero bound, it can go negative. So using options um, to access inflation markets makes so much sense to me, because uh, then you have, at least with the options piece, that defined downside in case there is you know, a, a deflationary pulse or, or things turn the other way, because inflation is a very long, long-term, uh, long, slow-moving process. And I also think that many investors are, are very focused on one index and terms of how they measure uh, inflation. And to me, that just seems very silly. Like it's like if the global economy says, all right, we're going to use the um, the Aussie index and that's equities for the world. It's just one index, right? And, and many investors um, in the US inflation markets are very focused on break-even levels, which are set by the consumer price index. And the key word is index. It's just one index. It's set by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it might not be relevant. Um, And that's why we actually have a lot of Aussie investors in the Eyeball ETF, and they use it as a way of accessing 85% of our fund is uh, treasuries with inflation protections, so the tips market. But then we access another measure of inflation and inflation expectations in the rates market, which gives, I think, a broader and more market-based measure of where inflation is, um, because so much of the CPI index is rent. About 30% is you know, shelter, and shelter is owner-occupied rent in that calculation. I'm really curious around the, the makeup of the portfolio. Um, you mentioned that it's got a very heavy amount of, of tips in there. I'm curious as to why that's the case, as opposed to for a lot of institutional investors, their ability to get access to tips is quite easy. Why aren't you just managing a, a, a portfolio of OTC uh, options? So we rebate the acquired fund fee that we use for the tips. So the tips are actually no cost to investors. Um, we do that to be very tax efficient. So we had... Um, funds, 40-act funds in the U.S. are taxed as an entity. So at least for 2020, we had zero capital gains tax um, on the fund level. 
And so the investors aren't actually paying uh, us to manage the TIPS portfolio. What they're paying for is our expertise in managing its actively managed OTC interest rate options. And so it's an access product. And we have lots of professional investors, um, macro funds, emerging market funds, uh, structured credit managers, many investors who use the iVault ETF who are professional investors to gain access to uh, the OTC rates market. And I think it's even more important with um, the time zone differences, like who wants to be managing a, a long gamma portfolio when they're, you know, 16 hour difference in time. <laughs> so... No, I, I totally understand that premise. I, I was sort of thinking more so in terms of like, where does this sit for an institutional investor? They've got very um, you know, particular buckets to to where they put things. You know, does this then sit specifically in their fixed income style bucket, or is this sitting almost in their alternative bucket because it has so much option optionality uh, attached to it? It typically sits in their fixed income bucket because the fund is 85% bonds. Um, it's U.S. Treasuries. So most investors put it in uh, in a, some people use it in a crisis risk offset bucket, which is um, where they put strategies. I've always long fixed income volatility. Um, it's also long U.S. government bond duration. And it's also long uh, the exposure to another measure of inflation expectations. So I see most people just using it in in their fixed income portfolio. But we do have some investors who put it in the alts bucket. They tend to be, uh, we have a few fund of funds who use the ETF uh, and other investors. We have uh, one in South Africa and another in Switzerland that I know about. I'm curious also around the ETF um, wrapper. It seems unusual for, I would say, most institutional investors to want to participate in an ETF wrapper. Can you give a bit more context on on why you chose that that approach? It's very low cost for our institutional investors. And I think, as we talked about before, many investors um, have moved into the private space. And so there's very, you know, having that liquidity buffer, especially when you have a long volatility strategy, I think is really attractive to institutional investors because if they have a funding need, say, you know, they have to find a private equity or a venture deal, they have the liquidity whenever they need it to take the cash out. And so I think giving investors a liquid, low cost, um, you know, it's long duration, long convexity, long gamma, long volatility, and also long liquidity um, at a very, very low fee is uh, is something that's been very attractive, uh, especially in the Aussie community. Mm-hmm. I'm curious around why you don't have any optionality, for example, on something like gold um, or some of the commodities, which have also been seen as a, as a clear hedge for inflation. I mean, we we put out a note, um, I think it was third quarter of last year about gold as an inflation hedge. Um, it was more, uh, I personally don't think gold is a great inflation hedge because it doesn't have any kind of carry. It, do, it doesn't pay a distribution. In fact, you could probably argue that there is a carry cost to it, at least with physical gold, because you have to put it someplace and store it and guard it. <laughs> you know, I think um, Warren Buffett actually said that, you know, in the late 90s, I believe that 
people, you know, Martians looking at the earth would think we were out of our mind to dig it up in one hole, melt it down and stick it in another hole and pay people to guard it. So Ival pays out a very high monthly distribution of 30 basis points a month or, you know, about 3.6% annualized in distribution. Many investors find that attractive because gold, gold is a, you know, especially if you own gold in Aussie dollar or gold in US dollar, it's actually a negative carry asset because you have to fund it in the local currency. So I think gold's a lot of things. Um, I think it's a currency trade. I think it is a psychology trade, but I do think gold has its own beta and it's not a a great inflation hedge because think about if we had inflation, we would likely have higher interest rates. Why would you want to have something that pays no, no dividend? I think then the challenge becomes, you know, as you think about how much inflation versus the interest rates moving, uh, it seems to be going back to your analogy to the three monkeys, there's the the blind monkey around inflation, I think, to some degree, as to how much inflation there really is versus the underlying interest rates. And and so to that end, can, can you potentially see some, some interest in gold, um, even in, in products in such, such as the REITs? as another place where people can look to sort of hedge um, where they see almost a disconnect between what's being reported as underlying inflation versus the reality of inflation then versus the the actual interest rates today. I personally think gold's going to have a hard time as an inflation head. You know, gold gold is a lot of things to people, but I just don't think it's a very good inflation hedge personally. And that's because of the the negative carry. Well, let's take it back to your your homeland, the U.S., uh, and the state of the U.S. economy today. It's obviously a key part of your thinking and, and the fund that you've created. How do you see sort of the U.S. trading through the next sort of three to five years as it comes out of the backside of, of COVID? You, you've had obviously a change in government last year. There's been a lot of excitement about spending, although things have been pretty slow. So I'm just curious around how do you see sort of the, the economy transitioning post-COVID with the current administration and, and, you know, what do things look like? I mean, I think the big challenge is getting the labor force mobilized in the U.S. and getting people back to work. The uh, unemployment rate is still pretty high and everywhere you look, there are help wanted signs and you actually are seeing wage inflation, which again, going back to my concern about stagflation, that could be really a disastrous outcome. I know we have many uh, endowments who use the IVAL ETF as um, a potential stagflation hedge in their portfolio, because if we had higher labor costs, um, because people are preferring to uh, collect their unemployment checks versus going and uh, working in some of these these industries, you could actually see higher prices, but not necessarily growth. So it's just. It's a really unknown time because we do have this this kind of wicked combination of you know, tremendous amounts of fiscal spending, which are very well-intentioned, but people also need to be good citizens and go back and get jobs. And right now, it seems like a lot of people are, um, there are help-wanted signs everywhere. It's very, very tight, the labor market, because people are not returning. It, it's interesting that you say that because then if I think about the potential other way that this could turn is it becomes actually more deflationary once the tapering starts the money starts to get pulled out you know obviously some of the inflation has come because of supply uh, constraints and the market being locked up once supply starts to come on uh, people aren't buying 
there is a, a clear potential that this could actually reverse and become quite deflationary. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that potential risk. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I like Eyeball a lot personally, because we can also do well with the strategy if we have lower front-dated yields. Um, so since the option strategy, it's actually the options are agnostic to the level of interest rates. We would just want the spread between short and long-dated rates to widen. And we don't care if that happens because you have higher long-dated interest rates because there's inflation or stagflation or lower front-dated interest rates, which would typically be an equity risk off when credit spreads are widening. There are a lot of hikes that have been priced into the front end of the US curve. So I personally am very excited about about Ival for that reason, because if we did have, you know, a slowing of the economy, those Fed rate hikes that have been priced into the forward market will likely come out. And that could also steepen the curve. All right. I think that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Nancy. Great to discuss with you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.